Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. You play the cards you're dealt, or so the saying goes, and as we know, not all hands in life are equal. One colleague and friend has undeniably been dealt a challenging hand, although she would disagree. I actually look at life events differently. I look at it as though it's rigged in my favor. That's Dr. Netta Shami. For those who don't know, Netta was nine years old living in Iran when the Iranian revolution started. This marks one of her earliest turning points, as Netta calls them. We recently sat down to talk about this and other life-changing events that led Netta to become the determined ophthalmologist she is today and help mold her truly optimistic outlook on life. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today, I am so excited to talk to Netta Shami. Uh, Netta has been a dear friend for a long time, and I've gotten to know her just through through meetings and um, just a lot of different uh, interactions professionally. And I've really found that there is just so much more than meets the eye with Netta, and I wanted to invite her on the show to talk about her career, but more than her career, just what makes Netta Shami tick. So Netta, with that being said, as a little bit of a preamble, thank you so much for taking some some time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today. Gary, thank you so much for having me. I think that we might have um, initially met at maybe an ad board or um, something else, and we had a really funny experience at uh, the TSA PreCheck. Yes. Do you remember this? Yes, I do remember. And we were with Sam Garg, and he had TSA PreCheck, and we didn't. And we were waiting in line for like an hour, and we actually made a bet to, that we would, one of us, whoever got TSA pre-check first, would have to pay the other one $20. That's right. Was it 20 or 100 it I thought. 20. It was 20 And just I owe for you. the record, <laughs> I I, you. you have not paid up. But I have so. to say, to be fair, I've actually decided, you know, I enjoy the standing in the in the line. <laughs> it's, a jur- it's all part of the journey. It's all part it? of the journey. You get to meet wonderful people. So, there but I'll go. pay you the $20. Uh, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. I would just love to hear a little bit of, of your story about when you actually came to the U.S. and sort of, it seems like your life has been about some transitions. There's been transition points in your in your life. And I feel like those are really interesting um, experiences that we can learn a lot from. So give us a little bit of a background on, on, your, on your first transition, your first big transition to the U.S. Well, there's, um, there was a couple of transitions that really defined my early life. I, when I was nine years old, the Iranian revolution occurred where the Shah uh, left the country and the Ayatollahs came over and it became an um, you know, Islamic uh, republic. And at the time, there was a huge kind of outflux of Iranians leaving the country at fear of what's, what's to come. And my father, who's a psychiatrist and actually who had trained in the U.S., uh, he found an opportunity for us to leave. So we fled the country in 79, 78 actually, and came to San Diego. And uh, I was in, gosh, I think I was in third grade or second, second, third grade. We went to a small area in San Diego, which um, was not very diverse. 
and you know try to settle. And, and, and about five months into us having moved to this small region, the hostage crisis happened. Oh my gosh. And um, where Iranians were really villainized uh, around the world uh, because of you know what had happened, which was so terribly unfair, and 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 we were ourselves horrified by it. Right. We never thought that we would be considered uh, part of that whole. Um, um, kind of genre of people who were anti-American. But I remember the day that the hostage crisis happened, the next day going to school, um, the kids wouldn't speak to me, the teachers would make comments. Um, my, my brother actually got beaten up by uh, some of the boys, older boys in his school. And so I, and then uh, probably the turn, turn, uh, the turning point for us was my ninth birthday. Um, in San Diego, we invited the whole class. It was like three, four months again. It was just shortly after the hostage crisis. And not a single person showed up. We invited the whole class, not a single kid showed up. And every time I tell the story, I cry, and I'm, I'm, I'm crying now. <laughs> and, um, but what was worse is that the parents actually came and threw rocks at our house. And huh, I can't believe I'm doing this. Wow. And um, and uh, egged our house and said, you know, go home, terrorists. So you know, it's, it was kind of funny because we had fled to the country to be safe, but right. we decided to go back, and um, because we didn't feel safe in the U.S. Now we could have probably gosh. moved to New York, and it would have been different. <laughs> right, right. So we went back, and this is a, you know, I'm sorry if I'm answering it too long. Is no, this no, so no. Good? I, this is so. <laughs> just keep t keep talking. I think this is part of your story and that's why I wanted to have you on the on the program Thank because you. it's so powerful. So then we went back and we decided to just continue our life even under the um, the revolution and my dad was actually a very successful psychiatrist and he did okay he didn't have any political ties and we were kind of not really bothered by what was going on outside of our homes. Can I'm, I ask a, a brief uh -huh. question? So when you came back were you looked down upon for leaving? Was um, there some sort of animosity uh, you know, or not too bad? I don't remember. I, I just had this sense of relief that I'm right. back back home. Right. Um, and, and, and then, you know, as I said, we continue our life, but then the Iran-Iraq war broke out. And with that, there was a lot of danger for boys uh, who were my brother's age. He was at the time um, uh, 14. Mm -hmm. And the, with the war, there was so much body, you know, so many people who were lost, so many men who were lost in the war, they started lowering the age of uh, enlistment into the, into the war. And it became, you know, it was 16 and then 15. And then, and oh then it gosh. was just like, you know, just take the tallest boys from school and we're going to take them to war f for bodies, basically, just bodies to fight. And so a few, when my few of my brother's friends got and you know uh, pulled into into the war, my father, uh, I'm sorry, my brother's friends, my father felt that that was quite unsafe for my brother. So he decided putting together. I mean, that's a story of its own. He decided to put together a medical file, a falsified medical file, to uh, figure out a way to get him out of the country legally. And so he was. He managed to do that through, you know, loops and his connections, and he left the country on the premise that my, um, you know, that my brother had a, me you know, a medical, un condition. Un a medical condition, and we stayed behind, my mom and I, and then about a year later we left. Uh, so I came really, truly. I, you know, I immigrated twice, but it was about when I was 12 and a half when I left the country and we stayed. Wow. Um, 
But this story is not unusual. I mean, you speak to Iranians who are my age. Many of us um, had very similar stories of just living on the edge, not knowing exactly where we're going to be living the next year and, and, and having to start all over again. You know, I think that, uh, you know, when I hear that, I grew up in the, you know, I grew up in Michigan, kind of Midwestern and kind of a simple upbringing, didn't have these transition points that, you know, a lot of people have gone through. It's so easy, I think, to just paint a culture, a people group, whatever, with a broad stroke. You know, we've heard axis of evil. And, you know, it's so easy to think, oh, well, yeah, those people don't agree with what we think. And then you meet people that you know and you love who are, um, you know, of that demographic or of that, you know, ilk, whatever you want to say. And you're like, life is never that simple, you know. And I just cannot imagine the, the internal conflict of, oh, we're going to leave, we're going to come to America, we're going to have a re- place of refuge, and it be this horrible experience. And I think, you know, and not to get too political, but, you know, we are, we are seeing, um, I'm, I think we're going to be seeing those stories playing out more and more with a lot of the dreamers uh, who, are, who face an un- uncertain future, et cetera. And I think that it's always important when we know people who have stories of, hey, I came here and this is what happened to me. It, it really helps us ap- apply those lessons that life is not just people in boxes. Everyone's, everyone has a story. Everyone has something that has, has really impacted them in a way that we can learn from. And I think that this is really important to unpack. You know, I think a point I can make is this has been a country of refuge for me and my family. And I am so grateful to be an American, so grateful that I had the opportunity to live here. Um, about 10 years ago, I was invited back to Iran to speak as, a, as an ophthalmologist, and it was really an amazing experience for me as an Iranian to go back to my home country and, um, a, you know, as a scholar, be right. treated like a scholar. But one of the, one of the interesting experiences was um, coming back to the U.S. for the first time I truly felt like a true American. You know, up until that point, I felt like, okay, you know, am I Iranian? Am I American? Am I just a visitor in this country? But I really felt like an American because I felt like, you know, I I saw my peers who were in Iran and the challenges they were facing. And I thought, you know, the gifts that I've been given simply by the fact that I was lucky enough to be part of a family who chose to come to America and all the opportunities that have come my way. That year, paying taxes was the most enjoyable. Wow. <laughs> Just because I thought, you know, I'm paying rent to live in a country that has given me a future, given my children a future. Right. How could I, how could I have any complaints about anything, really, for that wow. matter? Wow. So you felt like you were coming back home when you came uh, to America. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I love looking at stories like this and, you know, the challenges. And I think that, especially growing up, you face some times when you know life was not fair to you for no reason of your own, uh, for no- nothing that you did. Life was very unfair. How do you feel like that, or how do you feel like those experiences shaped you, or how do you feel like you respond when you feel like life is not fair? And do you feel like your experience early in life has, in some ways, molded your ability to overcome. Well, I have to, I have to actually um, disagree with the notion that sometimes you know life isn't fair to you. I've always looked at it differently. Okay. Maybe because of my dad. My dad is a is a quintessential kind of optimist, 
nothing ever seems unfair to him. In life, he always finds the rainbow, and I have picked up on that. And I have to tell you, you know, you may think, oh, life was fa unfair. We left the country. This revolution could, you know, could. But if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here, right? right? I wouldn't be here talking to you. So I actually look at life events differently. I look at it as though it's rigged in my favor. Wow. I look at life, and this is a quote that I came across recently that, you know, uh, live your life as though it's rigged in your favor. I really felt like it resonated with me because that's really how I've lived my life, is that when things happen that cause transition in my life, Sure, at the time it's challenging, but I look back and I think, gosh, thank God it, that happened. Thank goodness it happened, because then I wouldn't be experiencing this other way of living. Yeah. And, you know, and if everyone really sees that and not look at it as being victimized. Now, I mean, there are life events that, that most definitely, thank goodness, I haven't experienced. And I don't want to uh, discount that, you know, um, deaths and family or, or, or debilitating, debilitating illness and such. But I haven't experienced any of those, thank goodness. Um, but, you know, the events that cause you to change your ways or maybe um, paint grow, it, or, grow or yeah. paint a different picture of your life, those are fun events in some ways when you look back on them in retrospect because yeah. then it allows you to live a different life and, and, and experience different things. Man, that is so inspiring. We could just stop right there and I think we would have uh, some major things to chew on. But I want to dig further. When So at, you know, came back when you were 12 and you went through the, you know, I guess, the normal-ish you know, transition through middle school, high school, et cetera. When did you start having the notion that you wanted to pursue medicine? And secondarily, when did ophthalmology come into focus for you as a specialty? First of all, my transition through teen years was, was not normal in the sense that I didn't speak English. And <laughs> I spoke English and mine wasn't normal. So. <laughs> but maybe because I didn't speak English, it was easier. Right, you had no I idea what they were to, saying. I had no idea that they were making fun of me. Me or right, right. It's um, a gift. Another gift. <laughs> it was another gift. another gift. Thank goodness I didn't speak English. Um, when you know, I, I went to um, the question was how did when did I decide on medicine? Right. You know, it's interesting. I started college actually interested more in arts and architecture. I was a painter um, growing up, and so I really was kind of directing myself in the liberal arts uh, uh, kind of direction. And then I, but sciences were always my strength and everyone I ever knew around me, because my, you know, usually with immigrants, they tend to hang out around uh, their peers that they know. So my dad's and my parents' family were all physicians. Mm -hmm. And so everyone I ever knew were physicians. I never had really met an adult architect or an adult, you know, painter, painter or right. anyone like that. And so, but I was driven in that direction. And yet I knew that my strengths were in medicine and, or in, in the sciences. And then I met my husband uh, who, you know, at the time he was two years older than I and very focused on medicine. And um, I was just intrigued by his focus. Right. And he, he, he basically spoke some sense in me, which he con has continued to do in the last 20 years. <laughs> Spouses are good at that, aren't they? <laughs> um, and he said, you know, listen, what are you, you're, you're so good at this, you should just go you know, do medicine, don't try to fight it, you know? Right. And I think um, that's probably what led to me realizing that medicine was really in my blood and I was trying to fight it. 
And so I, I, I followed medicine. And as far as ophthalmology, that also was a, another um, situation where I um, was talked some sense into. I went into internal medicine because I loved everything in medical school. I loved, I loved my orthopedic rotation. I loved my ophthalmology. I loved everything so much that someone said, well, you know, because if you love so, if you love every field, you should just do something general. Right, like you can see everything. Internal, you can see yeah. everything. So I went into internal medicine, and I was going to do cardio, um, in, interventional cardiology, mm -hmm. which again was trying to focus myself. And um, about two and a half in, in, two years into my residency, I was uh, admitting my you know twentieth patient that night, oh my and my, <laughs> and and all of a sudden I got this flash forward of my lifestyle being this you know calls and 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 getting called in, and I overheard a girl on the phone next to me crying to her parents saying, you know, I'm thinking about quitting ophthalmology. And you didn't know the story? Now I, I, <laughs> it's ringing. I remember this now. I remember this. And you've so, told me this before. This is the yeah. whole attitude. You feel like right. life, life is, is rigged, rigged in your favor. I thought, I thought, is this a message? Right. <laughs> you know? And so she was a resident at Jules Stein. And she was quitting her, um, you know, residency about two years into it. She was my age. Which and never so, happens. Which never, never happens. happens. Exactly. And I think maybe even in her case it didn't happen. I'm not sure exactly what happened to her. She decided probably to stay. But it kind of started a path for me where I revisited my interest in ophthalmology, which had been a late interest in medical school, mm -hmm. and uh, started applying around. And I got into UC Irvine. On a, uh, and that was an, another kind of story of its own because they had closed, they, they had a, a resident dropout as a second year. And I applied to that spot and there were so many applications. They, the secretary, when I called in, said, sorry, we closed off the applications. And so I said, you know, can, can you make an exception? No, sorry. I, I drove to Dr. Peter McDonald's uh, office, <laughs> slipped my resume under the door, and left, and I thought, okay, well, they closed it, but they didn't say they cl they closed it to mailing in right. the application. They didn't close it to actually slipping it under the door. <laughs> you met, you found a way. I found a way, and um, you know, and and thankfully, I had impressive enough of an application that uh, you know, Dr. Peter McDonald uh, noticed noticed my application, and actually, uh, you know, I got into that position. And so I, I took that one spot for the resident who had left. Um, but there was, there was something like 60 applications for that one spot. And so I was uh, grateful for that. Life is rigged in your favor, I'm telling you. You just have to, you do have to, you have to tweak it a little bit. You know, you can't just sit back and wait for things to happen to you. I mean, that's, that's like such a hinge moment. Do you ever like think about, all right, what if I would have just taken no for an answer? What if I would have just yeah. said, oh, you know, application's closed, I'm just gonna, stick it out and be in, doing internal medicine. Like, is, is that in your DNA to just not take no for an answer or like, I'm gonna just work this problem well, until I get, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see how far I can, I can take this? I wish, I wish I could say that every opportunity that has come my way, I've approached it that way. Um, you know, where I, I've gone out all out, no. I mean, there's definitely, you have to prioritize. If, right. you, if you said yes to every opportunity out there, right. uh, you, you'd probably be kind of running around in circles. I think I, I have learned that if I really want something bad enough, um, then I do my very best so I don't look back and wonder. There's been many opportunities that I missed out on because I didn't have that attitude. And 
through my years, I've learned that if I want something bad enough, I got to go for it. Right. You bring up a really good point, and this is something we kind of talked about, I think, in the past and with other guests on the show is, you know, how how do you achieve that balance? You know, how do you achieve capacity in your life? And, you know, as a working mother, as a wife, as an ophthalmologist, as, you know, all the different hats that you wear, you know, it can be exhausting and overwhelming on the best of days. How, you know, do you have a, a philosophy that, that you sort of run decisions through where you say, all right, these are, you know, this is how I'm going to prioritize, you know, how we kind of make time for the important things? You know, um, do I have a philosophy? No, I should. I should probably, this is, <laughs> I probably should have a philosophy. Okay. <laughs> I go with my heart. Okay, I go That's with a philosophy. my heart. Yeah. Um, I, you know, most definitely my children, my family are a real huge priority for me. I don't have to even think twice about it. Right. And when they need me, I'm there. And so that, that, I think has um, has That's been an really in, kind of an anchor point yeah. for me, uh, which but obviously my my work and what I do uh, at work and my patients and I, all of that is also very high and it's it's up there. Right. And those two are the anchor points. All the other stuff falls apart. <laughs> <It's okay. That's laughs> like okay. you know, home stuff. You know, the roof falling on our. You know, the air those conditioning. Things, the air unit, conditioning. You said broke the other <laughs> day. Yes, my husband would not be happy about me <laughs> mentioning this. It broke other day. It was like two weeks ago, and we've had this heat wave. And I'm and sorry. You know, speaking about you know, life is rigged in your favor. I actually feel like it's been an interesting experience because now I'm really looking forward to it being fixed. You are going to have a whole new appreciation. I'm going to have a whole new appreciation. Air conditioning. That's awesome. Let's switch gears a little bit and, and dive a little bit deeper into ophthalmology. You know, what? T- tell us a little bit about your practice and what is exciting right now for you in ophthalmology. So I uh, was an academic, well, actually not, prior, let's start back. Sure. So after fellowship in cornea, I joined um, a, a small practice in Oregon. My husband was being recruited to Portland, Oregon, and uh, uh, and we had a six-month-old, and we moved to Oregon, and I found uh, the only position that really resonated with me at the time, which was less than ideal for me, was a small clinic called Portland Clinic. And uh, basically, I, I, I joined as their ophthalmologist. It was like a Kaiser model and, and did lots of cataract surgeries. But about six months into it, I thought, you know what, I, this is not for me. Uh, I want to use my cornea skills. So I uh, sought out um, the cornea practices around, and Mark Terry, as you know, at uh, Devers Eye Institute, is, yeah. was in Portland. And I knew of him at the time. Uh, he really was already um, involved with DLAC and endothelial carioplasty. I reached out to him, and he was so generous and so kind. Uh, he said, um, you know, I'm not looking for an associate, but please come on by. We have meetings. You're more than welcome to come and visit. I'll, I'll you know, show you the eye bank. So I went and met with him, and I said, are you sure you don't want an associate? He said, I'm, I'm sure I'm not ready for an associate. Um, I'm noticing a trend here. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> and then going. I said, well, how about if I uh, help with, you know, papers and, and articles or any projects you have, I'd be happy to help. And, and he says, huh, that's okay. Well, here's an article I was invited to write. Do you mind um, doing this one? No, not at all. So I went ahead and wrote that paper and send it in and then that led to a couple of other projects that he offered me and I did it on my time and and I really had I was not doing it to impress him I really that was not my motivation it was truly genuine interest in wanting to learn from him 
but I think it kind of sparked in him an interest in what you know this this woman she's, really talented. she's talented yeah. or she, you know she's I, he interacted with me and and he thought okay it'd be fun to work with her or that she seems like she would be an asset to the practice so about six months later I get a letter at the office or a note in the office saying you know Dr. Mark Terry called would like to speak to you and I thought it was about a patient but I called him he says you know I've been thinking maybe that whole question about you you know associate that you brought up last year um, maybe we should talk and so I went and met with them and we, you know, and then the rest is history. I joined him and really having joined him in practice and being his junior associate was a life-changing experience for me. Um, it was an absolute, you know, it made my career because it, it, it infused this passion for innovation and corneal transplantation at a level that was incredibly advanced, right. defined by his desire to do the best possible. And, and that was also a turning point. And Life you know, might be rigged in your favor. <laughs> no, <laughs> you were in but, Portland at just the right time. But, you know, here's the thing. I could have been sitting at that clinic and right. complaining about how this is not for me, but do nothing about it, which right. is what, you know, I tell my kids, if you're unhappy, find a way out. Right. Look at other options and maybe... Make your own luck. Make your own luck. Make your own luck. Be open to opportunities because there are out there you just have to look for them you know and and I think it's important to to uh, but sometimes you may think you're unhappy and you look for other opportunities and that has happened to me too and you see you know what this is this is really wonderful like the right. whole air life isn't so bad no life isn't so bad like the air conditioning thing we used to complain about how our air conditioning wasn't strong enough I bet after it gets fixed we'll be perfectly happy with right. it <laughs> right so I think the the lesson is you know be be positive evaluate your situation realize may, it might not be as bad as you think but also not be afraid to go out on a limb if you something's really important to you yeah Man, that is, there's so much to that. It's fantastic. So fast forward us a little bit to where you're at now or any yeah. story. I guess you transitioned so there back into academics? We transitioned. So, you know, Mark Terry's practice at Devizai Institute was academic private. Mm -hmm. You know, he obviously was, uh, the practice was highly prolific in publishing on the endothelial keratoplasty innovations that he w had a big part in. Um, and so it was very academic practice, but it wasn't, we had fellows, we didn't have residents, it wasn't a medical school that was affiliated to. Um, my husband got then recruited to USC, and with that I also got recruited to USC, and the, you know, the part about that that really drove us to LA was that our family lives in LA. That's, and, that's fantastic. And as happy as we were in Portland, and really, Probably the six years I spent at Devizai Institute were um, really some of the, the most memorable years of my career. And I do sometimes look back, what if I had stayed, how different you know, my career would have been. I mean, everything has been wonderful, but it would have been a very different direction. Right. So we came to USC, where we were part of academics, uh, uh, traditional academic institution um, for, you know, I, I stayed for five years. And then things at, at Doheny Institute at USC kind of t took a turn, and there was a lot of leadership change. Right. And it just didn't seem like it was the right pay, uh, place for me. The, uh, I think the overlying reason, the, the main reason that I left, I mean, the, my colleagues were amazing. The, uh, I missed the medical students and the residents. But what I found was frustrating for me, and possibly because of all the academic turnover and the leadership turnover, I felt like the momentum of growth, my personal growth as a clinician, as a surgeon, and, uh, um, was 
was slowed and I felt like right. my wings were clipped. And again, to be fair, things have changed at Doheny now right. um, and it's much more stable. So I just, in that situation, I was at a place where it was very unstable and I felt like I could either stick it out or if the right opportunity comes, uh, seek that. And right. the opportunity then came for me to join my friend, uh, Nicole Fram, yeah. who you all know, who's amazing, as well as Sam Maskett. So mm -hmm. they are in private practice, uh, very you know close to where I was. And I felt like we were aligned as far as our approach to patient care and, and contributions that we'd like to make to the field of ophthalmology. And, uh, when things were, again, very unstable at USC, and I wasn't sure if there would be a future for me, I decided I would resign and join um, Nicole. I have to say, though, it's been hard in a sense where I, um, you know, moving has not been as easy as, as one would think. It's right. Every opportunity has been wonderful, but if I could have, you know, if, if if we had stayed in Oregon, I would have loved to stay at Devers Eye Institute. I think I would have been in a different place in my career, and it would have been in some ways better for me um, having stayed in one place and really growing within one institution. Yeah, but you know, at each stop off, I'm sure that there are things that you have learned along the way, you know, and life, remember, is rigged in your favor. We've proven <laughs> that time and time again, so I'm not buying it. Uh, but I, I know I know how that feels um, to sort of have that magical or, or that that place that you you have a lot of fond memories um, and, and to kind of think back on that that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, now that we could just kind of talk forever, um, I, I do want to get one maybe a pearl or two um, or a little more insight into what is exciting you right now about ophthalmology. Are you most excited by corneal surgery? Is that when you have your corneal cases, are those the cases that you are, are most excited about? Is it cataract, refractive cataract? What, what lights you up when, you're, when you look at your surgery schedule and you know you have X on the schedule? What is it that you're most excited about? You know, what, I, what I'm most excited about is the variety of cases. Because okay. when I was doing fellowship uh, with cornea, for example, it was just PKP. Right. With cataract was you know, monofocal lenses, there was, if you did an LRI was, wow, you must be a refractive surgeon. Right. I love the variety. When I see my lineup and I have every single case is different than the other, right. to me that just is so cool. And, and that's exactly what excites me is the fact that there's variety and adding further variety. So one, you know, if you say, what specifically excites me, I mean, I love my cornea cases. I feel, I look at my corneal transplants as an opportunity um, to really, it's, it, it, I look at it as art. You know, I tell right. my patients, your your eyeball is my canvas and right. allow me to. So to, now we're, go, we're coming full circle back to your architecture and yes, art. Yes, exactly. Right? It's so true. I do, I love lamellar corneal transplantation because it gives me that opportunity to really try to recreate that stability of the cornea. That's really cool. Uh, but yeah, with cataracts, you know, I still have sutured IOLs I love to do, and I'm learning a lot from Nicole and Sam. Their technique is amazing. I've done it. I've done sutured IOLs for 12 years, but to do it their way is, is a great uh, approach. And so I, I, I'm just excited about learning more, doing more, and being better at, at what I think I'm good, good enough. There's always a better way to do it. Oh, I love that. Well, 
Nada, I think we'll just leave it right there. Um, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story. I know it resonates with me. It's going to resonate with a lot of other people. We are very, very blessed that you decided to stick it out um, in this country, in ophthalmology, that you transitioned and uh, to becoming just a wonderful ophthalmologist. There's so much more we can learn from you, and I'm just excited to have you as a friend and a colleague. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gary. We can't always choose our circumstances, but as Netta shows us, we can choose our perspectives. I'd like to send out another thanks to Netta for sharing her amazing story with us, and I invite others to consider doing the same. There's a lot we can learn from one another's experiences. So with that, thanks for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Be sure to visit itube.net slash podcast and rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.